Hello and welcome to But Where Are You From, a podcast by Be Seen, Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. I am your host, Mayan, and with me today are Jenny Lau and Tiffany Chang. Welcome, welcome both of you. It's so nice to have Yay. you both podcast. Yay! Could you both uh, introduce yourselves, please? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Tiffany, and you probably know me as Tiff Cooks a Lot on Instagram. And my introduction, okay. <laughs> I'm a stay-at-home mom. Um, I used to run a supper club, a Taiwanese supper club, and a Taiwanese bento box business. And now I am a fair weather recipe developer. If you're nice, I'll share recipes <laughs> if you ask nicely. <laughs> but mostly I post yeah, videos and tutorials. And I'm really happy to be here today. So thank you for inviting me. Hi, my name is Jenny Lau. I am the founder of Celestial Peach, which is a platform to tell stories about Chinese food in the diaspora and the people and cultures behind it. Uh, during the day, I am a freelance communications consultant. I specialize in cultural sensitivity, <laughs> very topical. And by night, I, um, yes, I write a celestial peach and I'm also a community organizer in my local area. You're a person of many, many talents. Welcome both of you. Um, I was thinking earlier, it's kind of like having Instagram royalty on the podcast today. I'm so excited. I feel a bit starstruck. <laughs> Jenny's my royalty. <laughs> Jenny's like superhero in my eyes. So. Oh, no, you're, but you're the taco queen, as we all know, or as I've called you now. <laughs> okay. I don't know if you remember this, but the first time that I ever met you, actually the only time that I've ever met you, was at the Be Seen comedy night that we did as part of EC Heritage Month. And um, I, I think I must have been a bit nervous, but I was standing behind the bar and you walked in and I went, oh, Tiffany Chang, as I live and breathe, which is a sentence <laughs> that I've never said before in my entire life. And you just looked at me and you went, hi. <laughs> and I felt so stupid afterwards. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you remember that. I, I think that's pretty good, Mayan. I mean, I must tell a story that happened just before we came to that Be Seen event, which is that Tiff and I were shopping in Chinatown with a couple of other um, also Instagram influencers. Uh, uh, I use that in inverted commas. And a guy stopped Tiff as we were exiting the shop. Um, a quite, you know, quite handsome looking guy. And he's like, are you Tiff cooks a lot? And he started talking to her in Mandarin. And the rest of us women were just like this gaggle of teenage girls kind of like laughing and cackling and poking fun at her while she was trying to keep a straight face. So if you're listening, Brett, <laughs> sorry about our behavior. Uh, <laughs> also upset. <laughs> so she shouted very loud. What us? <laughs> Brett yeah. sounds like such a macho kind of all-American name. Right. It, it really was, right? And the funny thing was because uh, uh, we were with another another Insta royalty, the other royalty in my life, um, Cherry, and uh, she took a bunch of pictures. So we put the pictures up on Instagram trying to hunt this guy down because we know who he was. I couldn't figure out who he was and uh, ended up accidentally pinned out, pimped him out to... Uh, to Instagram followers and and ladies or, or gentlemen he is single and he's in his early 30s and he teaches some kind of seductive Brazilian dance yeah I totally stopped the guy all right oh wow or maybe you can use your like collective influential powers to like hashtag find Brett love uh, uh yes I will start my own TikTok movement yes that will be my 2020 goal that's it okay. <laughs> about like meeting people for the very first time um the first time I met Fuja Dunlop the amazing Fuja Dunlop was at a private supper club and uh I had no idea she was going to be there so I was like in the in the kitchen just like following the chef around because I wanted to know what they're doing and I turned around and there she was right at the door and without missing a beat I pointed at her and just went do you know who you are <laughs> 
So I think that's way better than what you said to me. Because she looked at me like, yes. I went, oh my God. (laughs) And then I just didn't say very much. Oh my God, that's priceless. Um, Okay, so before we get sidetracked, um, I have to, it wouldn't be a But Where Are You From podcast if I did not ask both of you. But where are you from? Jenny, how about you go first? Sure. Um, I am from East London via Southeast London. Yay! Via Stockholm via um, Hong Kong and Malaysia. So that's the kind of long answer that I give if I'm in the mood to divulge my heritage. Um, Honestly, yesterday or two days ago, I had to just really tell off this guy who was asking that question and he just wouldn't accept it. And um, I think it depends. Yeah, it really depends. You can just tell, can't you? You I saw that. Like, it was a guy serving me coffee and I I felt like it was very inappropriate Mm. in that moment. (laughs) Yeah. And you can just tell, can't you? Like, you can tell when someone's asking it from a genuine place of softness and curiosity and you can tell when they're just demanding to know because it means that they can put you into whatever box that they want to check yeah. how about you Tiff? so I I was born in Taiwan I am Taiwanese full fully <laughs> blooded Taiwanese uh, but I moved to the United States when I was about 12 years old I lived in the U.S. till I was about early 20s then I moved to London so I kind of moved from places to places and my accent kind of gets really messed up. Like my American friends would tell you I have a British accent. My British friends would say, there's no way in hell you have a British accent. You still sound very much American. And then the Taiwanese people, I don't even have friends in Taiwan, but when Taiwanese family hears me, they're just like, you just sound weird. So yeah, a little bit, bit of everywhere. Um, but yeah, I've been in London for about 17 years now. So that was unexpected, but... So you're a Londoner. Yeah. That's very interesting because you and I both left um, the, I guess, our home cities around the same age. I left Hong Kong aged 11 and you left Taiwan at 12. And I think that is a very formative year, apparently, or age to mm. sort of change um, environment. It's quite, it's quite um, traumatizing without using that word lightly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're being uprooted. Yeah, did you choose to move? Was that your decision to move from Hong Kong? Was it your family's or? No, it was part of our kind of migration story, I guess, but uh, it didn't work. I mean, it worked out, but it didn't work out in, in different ways. So I'm still, I'm still reckoning with that right now. In fact, it's taken 25 years at least to even start to address what it did to me. Wow. Um, Jenny, I know that you know you you mentioned that a big part of the work that you do on food is to do with diasporic communities, and you know we will see how moving around and how migration actually develops kind of pockets of different types of cuisine, and it's quite clear to anybody who follows any of you on social media that food is such a big part of both of your identities. Um, so how did you find those communities and why is food such a a powerful vehicle for you to express yourselves? Um, Jenny, maybe we can start with you. Absolutely. I think it's twofold for me. Um, It started out, I guess, as this very personal journey. And what I found was that, um, as I said, you know, it took a good 25 years for me to actually feel ready to sort of go back into my childhood and and revisit those memories, I found that there were lots of gaps in my memories. And one way of accessing them in in this almost like safe way was to use food and to use this personal food memory as a way of reminding me this is where I came from. um, This is what it was like growing up in Hong Kong. And at the same time, I found that process quite healing as well, because um, I started returning to a diet that was, you know, much more ancestral and much closer to what I ate as a child so I really do believe that actually eating a diet that is quite close to 
I, I'm not I'm not a follower of the ancestral diet in, in that sense, but something close to what you grew up on is um, is it's very healing. Um, and then the second thing is that I started using social media in in particular to connect with other people who also feel unrooted. Um, not just diasporic Chinese, but also um, largely East and Southeast Asians. And that's how I came to start these um, events that I run, which are, you know, potlucks and kind of supper clubs. Um, and it's been a wonderful way to connect with people and to bond over a very sort of specific shared love of food, um, but always with a view to, you know, <clears throat> sharing stories about where we come from. Um, and I, I find that, you know, I can get together with people who come from very different backgrounds with different sort of ethnic identities. And yet there is something that kind of links us all together. And I think it is this uprootedness. I have to say, I think every time I see the pictures that you put on your social media and especially the pictures of the supper clubs and the events, they're never happening when I'm in London and I'm always like, damn it. But I have to say, every time I see those amazing pictures of these creations, you know that it's never just about the dish or about the thing. There's always so much of a story and a meaning behind it, regardless of whether or, it's, whether or not it's something that's been made traditionally or whether it's more of a creation or an experiment. And I love the way that you tie what you do physically to your writing work. Um, and I've learned so much from the way that you explore your identity. So I guess thanks for, thank you for making that a public experience for other people as well, because it is such a personal thing. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. To that point about it being very personal, I think it took a lot of, I just had to push myself to do it. Um, it almost felt natural when I started writing last year, it, like everything had kind of come to this point, it had bubbled up. And I also, you know, I felt like I'd, I'd done this work, this internal work on myself. I'd connected with people, I'd learned a lot from them, I'd learned a lot about myself. And then, you know, it was just very natural. I started writing one day and I, I still haven't stopped. And <clears throat> as to your point about the events, yes, what I, what I found is that we have more in common <laughs> with others than you think. Uh, just an example, you know, last the last potluck I did was this huge banana leaf rice feast. And all I did was lay down banana leaves and cook some rice. And everyone brought food that, you know, was specific to their cultural heritage. And yet everything just went together so well. And then you started to see these, you know, threads and sort of links between certain cuisines and, you know, well, we cook it this way, you also cook it that way, we use ginger in this way and you use chilies. And so th there's this amazing, yeah, shared identity too. Yeah, and that's so obvious to see. And it's also about, it's about joy as well and celebration. Um, and I have to say the joyfulness is something that I see a lot on your page, Tiff. Um, I mean, I, anybody who follows Tiff on Instagram, you really feel like you are slotting right into kind of like an elf on the shelf, fly on the wall kind of thing in, in Tiff's family life. You see the ups and the downs, you see whatever is whatever the kids are doing that day, whatever you know disruptive thing has happened, but you also see so much joy when you discover new things or when you're cooking things and you're happy with how they turned out. Um, so yeah, how, how did you get into cooking and how do you express yourself um, through food uh, on social media as well? Gosh, I'm really glad you say you said that you're you're experiencing joy when you see my feet because I always thought I was so miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm always complaining the whole time um, <laughs> about my life. Um, oh, that was such an eloquent response, Jenny. Um, I got into cooking probably a lot different from you know how lots of people always say they got really into cooking because of the grandmothers or the mothers and stuff my grandmother and my mother my grandmother was a phenomenal cook and uh, and so was my mom my mom actually learned a lot from my grandmother so she kind of carried on cooking and testing my grandmother's recipes and all of that but she never shared any of them with me I was kind of forbidden from being to the kitchen, you know, um, even though my family runs a restaurant, my family still runs a Japanese restaurant. 
in uh, Northern California. My grandparents were both educated in Japan. My my I was actually able to understand Japanese up until the age of three. So we do have a lot of Japanese influence in, in my childhood and in, in my family. Um, but I was always kind of like deterred from working with food. So I did not learn how to cook from my grandmother or my mother. I was not hanging out in the kitchen and watching my mother cook and any of that. So because we were always told that you need to study, study hard, stay away from the kitchen. That's not for you. Right. Um, so it wasn't until I moved to the UK and had, had the, faced the harsh reality of how expensive it was to eat out because it really wasn't as much as expensive in the States. But then I moved to London and suddenly it was like, how much for a sandwich? <laughs> you know, how much for fish and chips? And lots of food were cold or fried. I mean, this is like 17 years ago. Okay. We didn't have the options that we have now. And uh, I, that's when I kind of said to my mom, like, I think I need to learn how to cook, like actually learn how to cook. And she was, she kind of hesitated about teaching me because you're supposed to be studying and you, you just, just learn very basic stuff. Um, so thanks to YouTube and obviously lots of blogs, I just want to discover it um, on my own. And to be honest, it was completely kind of by accident um, that I was, rediscovering my identity through cooking. I didn't really think much about it. I just wanted to cook food that that was edible. I mean, like I've been with my husband for 16 years and he can't tell you the kind of food I made back then. It was horrible. I mean, like he, lovely man, he would eat it and he would look at me and be like, I don't think you should feed that to other human. Just, just saying. <laughs> So I always say if, if there's hope for me to cook like I cook now, there's hope for everybody. Um, but it was really just kind of, I didn't even realize I was missing Taiwan. I didn't even know that I was missing my identity. I kind of, when I moved to the States, I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood in an almost all white high school. And even though my parents did end up moving to the States to be with me, my parents pretty much just kind of adapted to the to the life that we had, you know, and my mom wasn't really she was cooking Asian food, but she would modify it with the ingredients that she should find in local supermarkets. And we weren't really I wasn't really missing it. I have to be perfectly honest. I wasn't missing Taiwanese culture. I didn't have any friends. I kind of just put that aside. And then I don't know, something kind of just nags at you, right? Within you, you didn't even realize. And it was kind of through cooking. I was like, why am I missing? I'm missing some kind of flavor. And I don't know, I didn't know what that was. So I would kind of try to retrace my childhood, similar to what Jenny was saying. And, you know, I would say things to my mom, like, oh, do you remember we used to eat this? And what, what I don't remember what that would taste like. Can you describe it to me? And then I would do ample research and then try to cook it, and then try to get that taste. But I'll be honest with you, I never quite achieved it. And I would be really upset. I'd be like, this is not my childhood taste, you know? And I would keep trying recipe after recipe, and it just wasn't happening. And it took actually years. Um, in fact, I think it took competing Crazy Delicious that I actually realized I wasn't chasing the taste of Taiwan. I was chasing the taste of my mom and my grandma. And it, it sounds so simple, but it kind of hit me like a ton of rocks because I'm like, I'm not really close to my family. So for me to kind of suddenly realize, oh my gosh, it was my mom's flavor that I was trying to copy. And there's no way I'll ever be able to copy that. Like, let's just face it, no matter how I cook, I could take my mom's recipe and cook it 20 times, 30 times. I would never get that flavor. And I had this conversation with my mom about it, and she was very touched, which is very, very rare for an Asian mom to actually tell me. She was like, I'm very touched. And then follow up by, but you're never going to get there because <laughs> you're never going to cook like me, right? Asian. <laughs> <laughs> but then she has kind of said, but I think it's time for you to discover your own taste because you have children now, right? Mm -hmm. And and I just thought, you know what? Maybe it's okay for me to not find my identity. Maybe it's okay for me to not say, to not feel fully Taiwanese. Maybe it's okay for me to create my own identity because 
like it or not, I did grow up in the States. I did spend an awful lot of time in the UK. You know, we travel and all that stuff. And it's okay to have these influences in my Taiwanese cooking. It doesn't make it less Taiwanese. It doesn't make me less Taiwanese. It doesn't make me less American. And I think in the last few years, with social media, actually, you know, with and that's when I do think social media is a positive thing is I met a lot of friends like Jenny on it. And they kind of helped me realize that it's okay to just be whatever the hell I want to be. It's okay to cook what I want to cook as long as I am respectful. And as long as I, and you know that you guys know that when I cook something, even if it's not from my culture, I research the hell of it, of it right? So as long as I know that I'm being respectful and I'm, as long as I know that it tastes good <laughs> and that I can feed other humans, <laughs> then I think it's okay. So yeah, totally forgot what the question was. <laughs> no, that but, was, I mean, that was beautiful really I was you know tearing up there a little bit that should be a movie but I think that what you said about respect um and just kind of doing your due diligence is really sound advice for anybody I think not just with cooking but with any kind of like cultural appreciation um people are always wondering well how do I actually do something respectfully and you know nobody is saying that you have to be Taiwanese to make something a Taiwanese recipe. You don't have to be Japanese uh, to make a Japanese recipe and so on. But I think that doing your due diligence and yeah, just showing your respect, understanding um, is, is such a huge part of it. And I think that you both show that very much through your respective channels. Um, and it looks like you both have a beautiful friendship that's come out of social media use as well. So yay. Um, there are a couple of things that both of you mentioned about of finding those paths later on in life it wasn't like both of you started out you know from when you were little like I'm gonna be involved with food that wasn't an impression of anybody um that was my small person impression <laughs> um, but I want to talk a little bit about that about you know it being okay to figure out stuff later on in life um and I wondered if you had any pearls of wisdom to drop for some of us who might be going through similar existential crises? Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, um, everyone who I speak to who's young, <laughs> and I count like under 30, under 30 is young. That's really young. And there's this kind of like freneticism and neurosis about oh, I need to you know get myself sorted and I understand that because we've all been we've all done that you know we all had to find jobs and decide what to study at university and um, you know get it all sorted understand what our life path is you know earn a decent salary especially if you're living in somewhere like London which is so unaffordable and I'm I will admit that I probably yeah I did that I I came out of uni, worked straight for a good 15 years. And then I was like, I am burnt out. And I got to the point where I was like, I don't want to work for the man anymore because, you know, I was so tired. I was traveling all the time. And, and then there were these, these inklings of like, I want to do something creative with my life. And again, this is like quite cliche. A lot of people my age sort of have this turnaround. And I, I think I was in such a good, good place because I, I recognized that urge in myself, but I also had very sound values. So I wasn't chasing money anymore and I was okay with that. I wasn't chasing, I wasn't being ambitious for the sake of ambitious in my career because I knew what would come later, which is this kind of burnout and you know, midlife crisis, soul searching. Um, so I kind of gave myself permission to just slack off and, um, Again, I will acknowledge that I have privileges that allow, allowed me to do that. You know, I was very comfortable. I own my own place. Um, I now live with my partner and, you know, we share a lot of costs. We don't have children, so we don't have dependents. Um, I have a, a comfortable life, but I also know that in working really hard to, to achieve that, um, I, I wanted to enjoy that and, and to use 
you know, whatever decent salary I was earning to, to then go and pursue my passions and to start these side projects and to experiment and to find out, you know, what was working for me. So it all kind of led to me starting Celestial Peach a few years ago. And believe me, it didn't start out as this idea of like, I'm going to be a community builder and write and all of this. And it was a completely different idea, actually. You know, um, I wanted to like create vegan food products. That's how I started. And um, what I did was I just, I just let it develop itself quite naturally. I let um, the ideas flow out of me. I sort of, I pursued many different strands. I think when people see what I do, they probably think, oh God, she does a lot of things. And I do do a lot of things. I will do everything that interests me until, until it becomes clear that, oh, I'm not, I don't want to pursue this anymore. So I think being able to kind of experiment and give yourself permission to sort of be creative and enjoy life is, I don't know, that's kind of my advice, but I, I know that it, it takes a while to get there. But at the same time, there are people my age, our age, older, who I can see are sort of on a trajectory to sort mm -hmm. of, I don't know, burning out quite quickly. And, and I, I sometimes I, I see people and think, do you enjoy, do you enjoy life? Do you enjoy what you do? And is, is it just all about, I don't know, earning money and getting a bigger house and all of that? And, I don't want to say this with any judgment, by the way. <laughs> I don't want to sound hard to slow down sometimes. I think like, yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the things like, and I say this to my daughter as well, is I, I was such a control freak growing up. You know, like, like I said, like I have a, like what Jenny was saying, like I, I had a path. I had a trajectory to, I knew exactly where I was supposed to go. And any kind of deterrent, any kind of sidetrack was like, no, you can't, that can't happen, right? And then obviously everything got sidetracked. <laughs> I never thought I was gonna, I never thought I have kids. I never thought I'd be in the UK. Like everything that has happened to me in the last 17 years, I did not plan. It was just, it just kind of popped out of nowhere. And, you know, if we're kind of go back to the plan, I talked about this with my husband all the time. You know, I was supposed to be married to a hot French guy. This is true. I was engaged to a French man. I was supposed to be married to a French man, moved to Paris, cause that was my dream is to live in Paris and then and you know work in what was I saying work in marketing and just be this like big hot shot I was not gonna I didn't want to I didn't want to be a mom I didn't want to run around chasing kids all day like that was just not the plan and I used to get really upset when things would go sidetracked you know and I'm like I'm the type of person if we say let's go for a walk I need to have a path. Like I Google map it. Like tell me where I'm going. Where is the destination? And if Google if Google Maps says turn right, I will turn right. My husband is the type of person who goes, let's go for a walk. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there, but we'll get there, you know, at some point. And we used to have lots of fights about that. But actually, after 17 years, he's <laughs> he totally rubbed off, you know, and, and I think that's great because it's out of our control, isn't it? You know, I'm 41, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be 42 in like four months. And one of the things I've learned is I don't have control over it. And I, all I can do is be the best I can in the path I'm now on <laughs> and just kind of accept that it's okay if, it, if you're sidetracked, it's okay if it doesn't go according to plan because you know, like you said about burning out, like I used to feel that when things would go haywire and I'd be like, that's not how it was supposed to be. Even up until like when I was doing pop box and the supper club, if things weren't selling or if I wasn't, you know, when you do a food business, everyone always says, you got to scale, you got to scale, you got to scale. And I knew in my heart that I didn't want to, but because everybody said I should, and I wasn't doing that, I felt like such a failure. But the reality was, well, I had a kid, you know, what was I supposed to do? I couldn't scale up even if I wanted to. And, and like Jenny, I am very privileged. My husband has a good job and he's able to kind of, he's able to support us so I can go and be creative or whatever you want to call it. So I know I'm very lucky to be, to be able to make decisions like that, but I just felt like, oh my gosh, I failed. 
you know, fabulously, but I failed. But you know what? I didn't fail because through all those adventures and, and whatnot, I met so many different people. I met some really bad people too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I met some amazing people. And I have to say, most of them are Asian, which is, I know it's weird coming from me, but I've never really had Asian friends growing up. I was almost like terrified of Asian friends. And because of social media, because of, you know, me letting, just kind of letting go and opened up my heart to just people. I met so many different people from the Asian community that I, I, otherwise I wouldn't have never met, you know? And I'm so grateful that happened. And I'm so grateful that I get to be here and have this conversation with you right now, because I can promise you, if you ask me to do something like this, if you ask me 10, 12 years ago, if I would be talking to a group of, you know, wonderful Asian women <laughs> recording a podcast or have a group of Asian friends that I can count on, I can promise you I could say there's no way. I just, I, I didn't know any. So I think Pearl Wisdom, it's okay to be sidetracked. It's okay if things go haywire and it's okay to just let go of control, you oh. know. I love that. I, I love this. I love this idea of giving yourself permission because it's, it may have been your parents or it may have been just society that's been telling you your whole life that you don't have permission. And I think particularly for people of the millennial generation, um, particularly those born like mid to late 80s, early 90s, you know, when you're studying, that's around the time of like 2008 crash. So you have everybody telling you, you need to get a job, you need to get a job. The job market's really bad right now, you know? And then, so you, you just feel like you have to take whatever comes along, you, know, you take whatever you can get and you spend, I think Jenny used a really good word, like a few frenetic years, just giving everything you have to just survive really. And it sounds like such a cliche, but it is an appreciation that comes with going through lots of shit, going through years as you get older, then you have that perspective um and I mean I think people of my generation are kind of sandwiched in between um for, for I'm, I'm 33 so like kind of sandwiched in, in in a in between different eras um and I think that a lot of people my age are starting to have these realizations now realizing you know what you want realizing what you don't want most importantly but also like you both said giving yourself permission to set boundaries and stuff like that so I found what both of you were saying to be incredibly relatable um so thank I you actually, I actually think that's great well that's what I admire about the mid like you know 30 something early 30 something because you know that you you just said it like I know what I want I know what I don't want I don't remember ever feeling that way in my 30s <laughs> You know, it's just like, it's mostly, I don't know what I want, you know, never, I know what I want, but even if you, even if I didn't know what I wanted, I wouldn't go and chase it. I, I just, I'd be too scared, you know? So I think it's great. Like, I, I, I hope our, by the time my daughter gets to be like, you know, she's, she's nine now in 10 years time, but she's stronger than me. I, she already is anyway, but I think it's great that young people nowadays know what they can ask for you know what is right and what they can stand up for and I think that's fantastic so good on you you're the future <laughs> I think knowing what you don't want that is so important because once you once you don't equate that with like failure although I must say failing and failing many times is, is a great sort of life experience in itself um, and so many things come out of failures um, but knowing what you don't want, then the decisions almost make themselves for you. And then I think the older you get, the more, you know, the less fucks you give, the more you know what you don't want and what you just, what bullshit you won't stand for. And it almost like everything just slots into place because you're like, I'm like, I don't want to work for a bad employer anymore who sort of works me to the ground. I don't want to put up with people who are fake. 
you know, I don't want to spend time at dinner parties, like making small talk with people who I think are sort of racist and bigoted, you know, that's, those are the kinds of realizations I, I came up with. And also in my early mid thirties, it's like, I don't want these things anymore. And then it, it's just easy because it saves you time and energy. And, and then you can go and pursue the things that really do matter. And I think I said something about values earlier, but um, if you have strong values from the very beginning, I think this is what sets you up to, to sort of have that trajectory, whether you scale or fail or whether it's chaotic, it doesn't matter. As long as you hold on to those values, then everything will be okay. I hope. And I think, yeah, I guess that sometimes with failures, mini failures or whatever you want to call them, maybe we don't even use the word failures anymore, but success often comes from failure and mm. that uh, you can reframe success nope that's not what I meant you can reframe <laughs> failure or uh, maybe not even failure just diverging from a path depending on the perspective that you have you can reframe that to mean success um, and I guess something that I'm learning is that success is kind of defined by me and how I feel about my decisions and my actions not by other people not by the bonus that I might get or the job interview that I might be offered or whatever it is um yeah totally. do, do either of you have kind of thoughts about the sort of the success matrix that we get forced to live in yeah I mean you know I've been I've ticked a lot of classical success boxes um but for example, to be, you know, to be very personal, one of the ones that does not deem me successful in sort of traditional Chinese kind of values is that I've kind of chosen for now not to have children. And this absolutely horrifies all of the elders in my family, especially my mother. Um, I think she thinks I'm planning to, but I just haven't told her that it's not part of the plan. Um, and I've, it, that is a very isolating experience, especially when all my friends, you know, have ch multiple children and, you know, um, but I, again, I really had to sit down and work on myself with that because I had to tell myself like, this doesn't define you. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean you're successful at life in any way. So, um, but I felt that again, you know, I had those values that I held dear to my heart, which were that, um, you know, I practice self-love, for example. I do, I do what I love. Um, there are certain sort of things that are like non-negotiables in my life that, that, and also just realizing that my value, my intrinsic self-worth and my value doesn't rely on what other people think of me and what their expectations are, even if it's my own mother who I, I love very dearly. So that's one example of where I, I feel like, sometimes I do feel like, oh, I failed you, mum, but I'm sorry, but this is my, my life and I have to live it. Um, but this is another thing of, I think, our generation, which is like, we are very much, as you say, sandwiched between the boomers. Um, and um, again, you know, we're generalizing, but it, it, there's truth, truth in generalizations, the boomers and what they kind of expect of our generation and the one below. And then we're kind of sandwiched with the sort of younger, younger millennials and Gen Zs and, um, it's very interesting sort of being in the middle of the two, especially because I personally um, interact with both ends and I find it quite challenging, but also exciting, you know. Um, you know what, these days, my level, <laughs> my idea of a success, if I don't lose my shit by the end of the day, my kids, I... <laughs> honestly, I, I don't have much time <laughs> to think about um, what success means to me. Um, I'll tell you though, because like I said, I mentioned earlier, I don't really have that close relationship with my mom. And it, if I didn't have kids, I don't think we would communicate as much. And because we, I have kids, she wants to obviously see the grandchildren and whatnot. Uh, but my mom, as you know, you know, I've shared some of our WhatsApp conversations before <laughs> on Instagram. She's, she's very honest. She's very direct. She does not hold back and she will tell things like it is. And I never thought that she would ever compliment me until I had children. She actually said to me, you know, 
I know you feel, she told me this out of the, I'm pretty sure she was drunk. <laughs> she told me out of the blue one of these days that she knows that I probably felt bad about, you know, my business not succeeding or whatever, but she said, but you have been a brilliant mother. I can honestly say, I think you've done a really good job raising your children and be a good wife. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant job raising your kids and you can't buy that. And I just thought, whoa, can I record that? (laughs) She just recorded it. (laughs) And I was smacked. I was like, all right. That made me happy for like a week. It was like Oscars. but yeah, these days, like success is if my my kid, if my second one can sleep through the night, success, success is if he doesn't like. <laughs> okay, the other day, I, I'm just going to share this on podcast. He's going to hate me 10 years from now. But the other day, my husband and I woke up to him screaming in his crib and I walked into his room. My son, my 21 son was in his cot licking his own poop. <laughs> oh, no. He's got his hand deep in his nappy. He took it out, smeared on his face, and I was like, "Holy! I, am I allowed to share?" I, of course. <laughs> what the fuck is this? <laughs> so a success is is if I walk into the room and he's not doing that. <laughs> oh my god! What a slogan for 2022. Oh. Success is not having a small human you're responsible for smearing poop all over their face. Success is not eating your own shit. That is literally the slogan of 2022. Um, so yeah, my the bar is low these days. <laughs> Don't you think that it's amazing though the way that um, generation gaps can actually improve communications? Sometimes, I mean, I think about my own mother, and I see her with her grandchildren, and she is nurturing and loving and affectionate in a way that she never was with me Um, and maybe the maybe the age gap between the grandchildren and the grandparents is kind of big enough and maybe they've also got to a stage in their lives where they're older and maybe I don't know um, you know I I hate this phrase but like more westernized I I don't know whatever it is it seems to be working Um, and yeah soft to the grandkids is because they're not her responsibility true. so if they're job, it's not her fault ice cream at 9 a.m she's like yeah go ahead it's not my fault if they're screwed up so yeah i could be why <laughs> jenny you work a lot in um you know with with ec communities in london um of varying different generations is that you know what do you observe about generational gaps between, particularly among East and Southeast Asian people? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I work with a lot of young people for sure, um, talk to them and sort of have collaborated on a few sort of projects. And I find, I maybe this is just a generational thing, but like, I am so envious of the kind of the the bright eyed, like, idealism and the activism and the kind of the passion and you know I think we were all like that when we were young in that we wanted to change the world and we also had this kind of fire and this this anger at everything that wasn't right and I I sort of view them half with this envy and half with this kind of like cynicism which is based on well it'll all change or or you know you can't change the world so just suck it up um and um, so it, I, I've often had to like hold my tongue or bite my tongue and because I think your views change with life experience as well and with increasing sort of responsibilities. And as Tiff says, you know, the bar just gets lower, <laughs> not to bring doom and gloom to the conversation, but like, yeah, as you get older, the bar gets lower and, you know, um, if this man isn't racist to me today, that's a success, you know, as opposed to, I want to cure the world of racism. Um, But on the other hand, I've also been so incredibly inspired by what the the sort of younger generation are doing and and the very creative ways that they're sort of speaking out and speaking up. And I think, you know, social media is such a huge part of that. 
um, I am generally very pro-social. I think it's an incredible technology and, an, and it's a tool that we should all utilize to the best effect. Um, of course, there are dangers that come with it. Um, and I'm very pleased that I didn't grow up with social media until, you know, I think, well, let me tell you, Facebook was the reason that I didn't get the exam results I wanted in my finals at university because <laughs> it was in, it was introduced in the in the last year and suddenly my, all my grades went down for some reason. Um, but I'm really glad that you know, like I, I built this sense of identity offline, um, and I guess that's what worries me as well about the younger generations that I, I see sort of their lives playing out and you know all their opinions have to be on social and. Um, also, you know, there's this danger of like, there's this danger of, I guess, um, you know, it, so what you do on digital, on social being this proxy for action. Um, and that's why I, I personally, you know, I like to do in-person stuff, you know, in-person events, connecting with people, speaking face-to-face, because -face, um, you get a really different vibe from that. And, you know, I've learned myself, I've had heated conversations where I've tried to like, call out or cancel people and then actually met up with them in real life and we resolved the issue because there are things about tone about intention about whether you're actually listening or just wanting to rant that you do online that that doesn't translate um yeah so my my unsolicited advice to everyone is like just talk to people offline you know as well if you can um but yeah. it's also sorry this has gone into something about social media <laughs> well, yeah I think that social media is a really good tool it's not the I was going to try and think of like a really clever analogy but I can't it's 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 just a tool like one of many um in order to get something done whether that's community building or like um just connecting with other people but it, it doesn't replace um, or at least for a lot of people it doesn't replace I know that social media is a lifeline for a lot of people who are otherwise who have a lot of difficulties um you know in society um but I guess you know one of the questions that we get asked at BC quite a lot is um how do how do you connect with older people uh, older generations if you only use social media and it's so true and that's why I think yeah um in person um activities can be really really valuable or collaborating across you know being in contact with different groups and different there's a whole world outside social media um even if it is super useful and I think has been a, a real lifesaver for a lot of people especially during the pandemic um especially during covid related racism um reaching a lot of people who typically maybe were quite isolated I mean Tiff, you mentioned that you grew up in quite a white area. Um, you didn't have a lot of Asian friends growing up. There's a lot of people in our audience who, um, you know, if you don't grow up in South London or, 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 or I don't know, in certain parts of Birmingham or Manchester, which are quite diverse, um, you can feel quite alienated. And I think that it is no coincidence that um, the kind of boom in like digital East and Southeast Asian community organizing um, was kind of exacerbated by not only the pandemic but also by the use of social media and I think that's amazing um, we just have to take it with a pinch of salt yeah I think I was quite naive when I started on Instagram I didn't even I mean I didn't use I was like Facebook girl all the way through you know and I only started Instagram because the food business I was told that I had to and I was quite naive because I thought people were being honest on Instagram <laughs> I thought people I thought you know because of what how can you lie about just putting your everyday photos or whatever, you know? And, and I thought the people that I kind of chatted with on Instagram would, that that would be their authentic self. And uh, it was definitely not the case. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea that people were getting paid to post and that was a big shock. And I, I actually ended up unfollowing a lot of people because I didn't realize that it, people were using it as an advertising um, platform and and yeah like like Jenny said I, I think social media is a great tool it's a great way to connect people that you wouldn't otherwise like I've met some I actually just this weekend I met a Taiwanese chef from New York City who I've been chatting with 
quite some time and he's doing amazing work promoting Taiwanese food to the mainstream like his beef noodle soup has appeared in Bon Appetit and he's been on Munchies and Pies and he's just great and if it wasn't for Instagram I would never have found this guy and and what I love about and I've told Jenny this before um I love it when you meet somebody off social and they're exactly the same and to me like if somebody said that to me that's my biggest compliment like I don't you know they could tell me yeah your food looks great blah, blah. but to me what makes me feel the best is when they say, oh my gosh, you're exactly like how you are on Instagram. You talk. You are exactly like how you are on Instagram. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, think, I think you might've been fishing for that compliment, but you can have it anyway. <laughs> but yeah, to me, that's, that, that's what counts. You know, like when I met Jenny, I was like, she's exactly how she is. You know, when I met Cherry, when I met Emily from the Rangoon sisters, when I met loads of other people from, um, uh, off Instagram I was like you're exactly how you are and that's great you know because we all know there's a lot of fakers out there and that's one of the thing that younger people has to understand like my daughter too you know they have their own kids their age they have their own social media platform that they use and she has to learn to navigate you know she will come to me and be like why is so and so you know when I see them at school they're like this but when they're on social media platform they talk to me that like this and it's a hard pill to swallow and I think it's kind of good for somebody for kids to learn this at a young age and you know we I think I, I said to my friends before I felt like I was pretty dumb at eight but you can't be dumb at eight now you have to be kind of savvy and you kind of have to know how to control the situation and and understand what is good and what is bad um yeah. but ultimately it is still good I still like it I probably shouldn't be on it for so long but <laughs> <laughs> so we're coming to the end of the podcast now sad face but I do have a last question to ask both of you I'm going to bring it back to food because I feel like we diverged quite a lot and stopped talking about food and we started talking about really deep life advice um okay last meal on earth what would it be Tiff go first (laughs) chicken burger on a milk bun with soy milk (laughs) oh I love that decisive fast Good for you. That was too fast. Come on. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. Years. Yes, that's my last meal. Fried chicken on a milk bun burger with soy milk on the side. Wow. You know, the irony is I asked this question to the people I interview. <laughs> but if I had to answer any of the questions I ask, I, I actually wouldn't know. Um, I, do you know what? I would eat like the perfect durian maybe that's a really simple answer to this because you know how they say durian is like it's just really heaty and like you can't eat too much of it but if I knew I was going to die (laughs) I would eat like a durian and then die in this like because you get this you know you can kind of get drunk on durian really no people have been pulled up for drink driving after eating durian (laughs) it would also be like this natural anesthetic for whatever method of death uh, i'd be going through i love that very simple but creative solution yeah are you a durian fan um um mayan i yeah i mean i I don't think i love it to the point of wanting to like gorge myself on it to till till death (laughs) (laughs) oh Um, i'm not oh gosh Sorry. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I've now got a really vivid picture in my mind. <laughs> What's your last meal? What's, what would you pick? Hey, 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 hey. Who's interviewing who here? Well, well, well. What's my, last, what's my last meal? Oh, God, I don't know. Actually, do you know what? I think my last meal is um, is Christmas dinner. <gasps> That's I'm a brilliant. big so fan of Christmas dinner. Um, and But I wouldn't want to have it every day because obviously you get yeah. sick of it but if it was my last meal and like all the trimmings because I mean I don't at me but I think like the sides are the best part about Christmas dinner so it's probably my probably my choice um so we actually have a really nice treat lined up for us for the end of this podcast Jenny among many other things you are known for your fantastic series of um a to z essays on your website which I'll ask you to um to mention at the end when you'll both get an opportunity to plug stuff. Um, but you, if I have understood correctly, you have, you've prepared uh, an essay in preparation for Lunar New Year, which is at the end of this month. 
and as obviously you all know is celebrated by many people um, of East and Southeast Asian heritage um, and Jenny has agreed to read something for us today a little excerpt from that so um, yeah without further ado thank you both so much for agreeing to come on the podcast today it's been an absolute blast and uh, we'll leave you with this little snippet this is an excerpt from N is for New Year Banquet from the A to Z of Chinese food. Uh, N is for New Year Banquet is written as a luxurious reunion banquet in eight courses. And with each course, I write an open letter uh, decoding the auspicious ingredients that are used in that course along with um, some of my thoughts. So this is course number two. Luxury seafood dumpling trio. Edible ingots filled with the finest luxury ingredients to symbolize wealth and prosperity. Shanghainese soup dumpling filled with Iberico pork and abalone compoy broth. Black truffle and shiitake dumpling with gold leaf. King scallop siumai with flying fish roe. Have you heard of the five C's? Cash, car, credit card, condominium, and country club membership. If you have acquired all of these, congratulations. You've unlocked the Chinese secret to success. Chinese girls, snag yourself a husband with the full set. Chinese boys, don't stop until you reach the top. Got all five? Now level up and produce, produce, produce those children. We laugh about the five C's because it is a self-deprecating admission of middle-class Chinese aspirations. But I don't think we would find it funny if we were forced to admit the five C's that come later. Chronic fatigue, credit card debt, career burnout, high cholesterol and midlife crisis. My hopes for my generation and those that follow is that we outgrow some of our elders' obsessions, including that with material status which is so intrinsically linked to saving face. Dumplings and fat choy for wealth, but at what cost? To gamify life's achievements at the expense of spiritual progression is a recipe for retardation. These are my five C's for a new definition of wealth. Comfort, live moderately in every way and not beyond your means. Culture, work on your intellect, value brains over beauty. Communication, engage with people in society. You start by listening. Compassion, treat others as you would have them treat you. And charity, give away what you own but don't need, be it money or goods, but also time, energy, expertise, and most importantly, kindness. Wow. Thank you so much, Jenny. I'm applauding. I'm applauding you. It's so so amazing to have that read out on the podcast I think it might be the first time we've had anything uh, like any kind of reading done on the podcast so um, thank you very much for that amazing advice but I could also see Tiff's I, I feel like when you were describing the, the 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 courses I could see like it was almost like I could see drool coming out of Tiff's mouth on the video can I just add that was sexy as hell <laughs> That voice, just saying, you know, side side hustle. Yeah, I agree with Tiff, and also, I mean, <laughs> really great for us all to take that into um, whatever we're doing to celebrate, um, or whenever we next see our families, or you know, I think it's a really um, appropriate note to end the podcast on, given that we've talked talked so much about expectations and um, about pressures and about setting bars and, and stuff like that so really thank you very much thank you both of you um jenny if people want to read your a to z essays where can they find them and where can they find you you can find me mostly on instagram at celestial peach underscore uk and you can read my a to z uh essay series on celestialpeach.com where by the time this goes out i will also have launched a very special project for lunar new year Amazing. Wow. I've got nothing. <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, I've been itching. To, sorry. <laughs> you didn't even ask. 
Can we cut that? <laughs> um, I've been itching to start hosting stuff with clubs again. So I'm only using Instagram to promote any um, upcoming projects or activities. So keep following and, uh, you know, something might come up soon in the next few months. Yeah, that's at Tiff Cooks a lot. At Tiff Cooks a lot. See, I, how, how the heck did I learn marketing PR? Not even the <laughs> name. That's at Tiff. Right. We will also put uh, all of this information in the show notes. So this was But Where Are You From? A podcast by Be Seen, Britain's East and Southeast Asian Network. I'm Mayan. I've been joined by Jenny and Tiff. And you can find Be Seen on Instagram at besea.n and Twitter at B-E-S-E-A underscore N. If you like this podcast and other episodes that we work really, really hard on, feel free to slip us a donation via our coffee page, um, which is ko-fi.com forward slash be seen. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, bye.